Psalm 145. Psalm 145. How great is our God? Just kind of a quick reminder, if you haven't been with us before, Psalm 145 is a, a beautiful piece of Hebrew poetry. And there's a poetic element used here by David that's called an acrostic, Hebrew acrostic. And what David does, if you were reading this in the Hebrew, you'd be able to see it. What David does, he starts each stanza with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. So if you're reading this in Hebrew, the first stanza, you read from this direction, the first word would start with Aleph. And then the next stanza starts with the word, it starts with the word, letter Bait, and on, uh, so on and so forth. So it's really uh, well thought out, and it's beautifully put together, this Hebrew acrostic. And I believe the main point of this study, the main point of Psalm 145 is found in verse 3. I think this is sort of the the thesis of what David's saying. Look what it says in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David is writing this psalm with the intention of magnifying the greatness of God. That's what this psalm's about. So hopefully, as we walk our way through this study and we finish this study, we will be magnifying God and His greatness in our own personal lives and as a family of faith. I shared with you this quote from A.W. Tozer last week about the character of God. I want to read it for you again because it's a convicting quote. And the reason I share this quote with you is because uh, we're talking about some pretty deep themes uh, we're, we're, you know, we're doing some, some, some seminary-type systematic theology is what we're doing uh, in, in this study. And, and, we're, and we're going deep on some things. And, and some people say, well, do we really need to go deep and talk about all that stuff and use those big words and all that kind of stuff? Well, this is a quote from A.W. Tozier. Tozier wrote, It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. That's a convicting quote, isn't it? That folks who are surrounded by Bibles, surrounded by churches, just are living life for the mundane and the trivial, and they never slow down enough or never focus their mind enough to think about our great God, who He is and what He's like and how we can know Him deeper. And so this, this study is intended to help us to think Great thoughts about our great God. And so far, can, anybody want to um, share some attributes of God we've looked at so far? What have we looked at so far? The, the what? The, the power of God. Yeah, we talked about His omnipotence, power. What else? The goodness of God. The, the, the understand, what was the first week? Transcendence and eminence. God is above creation. He's above us, but he draws near to us. He's beside us. and So we've talked about those different attributes of God. Tonight we're going to talk about his grace. God is gracious, and I'm so grateful that he is gracious. And hopefully you will be when we finish our study together tonight. You know, the grace of God is a wonderful theme. Some of the greatest hymns of our faith have centered on the grace of God. Of course, there is Amazing Grace written by John Newton. And John Newton got grace because... You know, John Newton, before his conversion, was an evil, evil man. He was involved in the British slave trade and was a wicked man. But he met Christ and was saved, and he became a pastor. And so you can imagine when he wrote that line, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He meant it. He meant it. He was truly amazed by God's grace. And that's been a song that has been cherished by churches and Christians through 
through the years. Uh, th- there's great songs that are like grace greater than our sin and some of those great hymns of faith. There's some new songs about grace that I love. Uh, there's a song by Matt Redmond titled, Your Grace Finds Me. I just love that song, speaking of God's grace from creation to the cross, from the cross to eternity. His grace always finds us, and I love that theme of the grace of God. By the way, you know, we can be edified by old songs, and we can be edified by new songs too, amen? And uh, I I love those songs about the grace of God. And you say, does the Bible speak of God's grace? Well, all over the place. Look what it says in Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, next week we're going to talk about the mercy of God, all right? But tonight, the grace of God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. A couple weeks down the road, we're going to talk about the the patience of God. Slow to anger. That's going to be good. He's slow to anger. So we're going to spend a lot of time in this verse, is what I'm telling you, all right? So just get comfortable in verse 8, all right? The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, After we talk about the patience of God, we're going to talk about the love of God. So, again, we're going to be in verse 8 for a while because all of these are attributes of our great God. So let's talk about the fact that the Lord is gracious. What do we mean when we speak of the grace of God? Well, what I want to do is I want to define it for you. Grace defined, that's that first blank, grace defined. I want to walk you through a a definition, and then I want to explain it for you. The, The next section is grace explained. And then we'll close our time by looking at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And this will be grace illustrated. So grace defined, grace explained, grace illustrated. We're going to look at it from that perspective. Let's begin with grace defined. Grace defined. I've given you three definitions. They go from short to longer. So we're going to start with a short one. And I don't have a a name behind this quote because it's just a very common way to refer to the grace of God. It's how I refer to the grace of God when I'm preaching on the grace of God often. God's grace is simply his unmerited favor. God's grace is his unmerited favor. It's his favor to us, and unmerited means we don't deserve it. Unmerited favor. That's a very simple way to think of God's grace. Wayne Grudem writes in his systematic theology that God's goodness towards the, uh, grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. And the third definition comes from J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God, which I highly recommend. If, if you haven't read Knowing God, you need to get it and, and read it and keep it on your bookshelf. It's a book I go to all the time. But in Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit. So not only do we not deserve it, we deserve far worse uh, than we get. And God gives us his favor anyway. Packer goes on to say, It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity, only judgment, only wrath. And so when God shows any kind of goodness to someone who deserves severity, that is an expression of the grace of God. So that's grace defined. That's what we mean when we use the word or see the word grace in the Bible. Now, I want to explain it for you. We looked at grace defined. Now, let's, let's look at grace explained. I want to just walk you through some different aspects of grace so we can sort of wrap our minds and hearts around it to a fuller degree and hopefully uh, worship in light of what we're going to look at. Uh, and, and I've got, what, eight things here? The first is this. God's grace is free. God's grace is free. God's favor is not something 
that you earn. It's not something that you acquire. God's grace is free. And look what it says over in Ephesians chapter 2. This is sort of the foundational New Testament verse or, or passage related to the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2. I love this, love this passage. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Paul writes here, For by grace you have been what? Saved. For by grace you have been saved. And he wants to unpack that so we understand what he means. He says, You have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. In other words, your salvation is not something that you earned, which immediately puts biblical Christianity at odds with world religions and cults. Because world religions and cults teach that if you want to be accepted by God, you've got to do all the right stuff. And if you do all the right stuff, if you check the religious boxes and do your duty, then God will accept you or, or bring you into whatever your conception of heaven is. That's how the different world religions and, and cults and some denominations teach, that, that salvation is something that we earn, that we merit, uh, that we work for. But Paul is very, very clear. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is what? A gift of God. If you work to earn something, that something is not a gift. It is something that you have earned. He says, not, just to kind of drive the point home. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You know, if we could earn our salvation we would be really, really arrogant about it, wouldn't we? Look what I did. I'm better than that person because I've earned my salvation. I've done all the right stuff, and they, they haven't. But see, biblical Christianity says you're not saved by, by earning your salvation, by climbing a religious ladder. You're saved by recognizing you can't save yourself. And you're saved by trusting what Christ has done for you, receiving that free gift of eternal life. And so God's grace is a gift. So by virtue of the fact that it's called a gift, it means it's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to work for it. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. You receive it, right? On Christmas morning, when we pass out gifts to our kids, I don't say, now go get your piggy banks. And, and if you give me the appropriate amount of money, then you can open the gift. That wouldn't be a gift then, right? It'd be something they earned with their money or paid for. Uh, salvation is a gift. Look over in... Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And there are so many verses we could look at. I'm just going to take you through a few. Romans 3. Back at verse 21. By the way, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is one of the clearest most in-depth articulations of the gospel in the Bible. So mark off 21 through 26 because it is an in-depth passage. Look what it says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, it's not a righteousness that you earn. It's a righteousness that God gives you as a gift, a position he gives you uh, when he saves you. Righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, not something you earn, through the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? Not work, but believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified, saved, made right, declared righteous by God, justified by His grace as a what? Gift. So again, we see it's very clear that justification, which is another way of saying salvation, being rightly related to God, having your sins forgiven so you can know Him in this life and go to heaven and be with Him forever, justification is by God's grace. It is a gift you receive, not something that you achieve. That's important. And then, just you're in Romans already, turn over to chapter 5. Verse 15. He's comparing here the, the free gift that is ours through Christ with the sin of Adam that entered the world through Adam. And he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, in other words, sin came through Adam and filtered down to us all. We've all been born with the sin nature. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Pretty clear, right? The grace of God. It says the free gift by the grace that the one man Christ Jesus gives abounds for many. So the Bible is very, very clear. Salvation through Jesus Christ is not something we work for. It's not something we achieve. It's something we receive by believing that we can't save ourselves, that our only hope is what Jesus Christ did for us. That makes sense? So let's just be real practical. That means that being a Baptist doesn't save you. Can I get an amen? You know, I was a Baptist before I was a Christian. You know that's possible? Yeah. Being a Methodist, being a Presbyterian, that doesn't save you. Being a church member doesn't save you. Going through a confirmation class doesn't save you. Going under the baptismal waters does not save you. Participating in communion does not save you. Only Jesus saves. And he gives you this free gift that you must receive by faith. That's the only way to be saved. Religious ritual won't do it. Doing good things won't do it. You must receive the free gift of God's grace. So God's grace is free. God's grace is free. Secondly, as we think about this explanation of grace, God's grace is costly. Now you say, wait, that doesn't make sense. You just said that God's grace is free, but God's grace is costly. Well, it's free to us, but it costs Christ, right? Matter of fact, I've heard one definition of grace, taking the letters G-R-A-C-E, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that. God's riches at Christ's expense. So, so grace is free. Salvation is free to us. It's a gift we receive. But, but it costs the Lord everything. It costs Him the life of His Son. And so how do we understand this? We'll turn over to 2 Corinthians. You're in Romans. Just turn over to 1 Corinthians. Just keep on going to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 which is a chapter, chapters 8 and 9 are chapters about generosity and our giving. And I love how these chapters are laid out because God grounds his call for us to be generous in the generosity that Jesus showed us. And look what he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace, there's that word again, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's using rich and poor as spiritual metaphors. 
He's saying, understand, Jesus showed his grace because he was rich. He was in heaven where he's been forever. From eternity past, Jesus has been in heaven. All he received in heaven was unceasing worship and praise and adoration, right? That's what he received in heaven. But he became poor. He came to this earth and took on humanity, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived in the womb of Mary. And he came into this earth in human flesh to receive ridicule and mocking and beating and flogging and crucifixion and, and, and all sorts of indignities against his perfection. So though he was rich, he became poor. He took on our poverty. He took on our humanity so he could come and die for us. Why did he do that? Well, it says there, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He left heaven and took on humanity so we could be saved and go to heaven. Does that make sense? We get the riches of God's grace freely. We receive them as a gift, but it cost Christ his life. That's the greatest price that's ever been paid for anything. Because Jesus shed his very own blood on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He died in our place. And so, yes, God's grace is free. You might write out there, in that sentence, God's grace is free to us. But God's grace is costly to him. I think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but everlasting life. What did, what did salvation cost God the Father? He had to give his son to, to die for our sins. Now, I can just tell you, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't give one of my sons to die in the place of a vile criminal, would you? But see, it cost God his son. It cost him everything. God's grace is free. But also understand that God's grace is costly. You should appreciate the price that was paid for you to receive that free gift. Here's the third thing as we explain grace. God's grace is greater than our sin. Look back with me in Romans 5. I know I have you flipping a lot tonight. But look in Romans 5, verse 18. Again, Paul here is talking about Adam and his sin in the garden, which led to all of us being infected by sin, of sin nature. Romans 5 verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's the cross, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, leads to justification and life for all men, all that receive him by faith. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, God gives us the law to show us that we're sinners. You know, some people actually think that they're not sinners. That they're they're not that bad of a person. And all they got to do is just measure their life by the Ten Commandments. And if any of us in this room starts measuring our life, lives by the Ten Commandments, we will quickly understand just how sinful we are, how we've blown it in our life. Just, just start walking through the Ten Commandments and see how you've done with those. And the Bible says if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of them all, right? That's what the Bible says. And so he's saying the law was given to show us we're sinners, to increase the trespass, to make us feel the guilt for our sin. But where sin increased, grace 
abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, our sin is great. Our crimes against God, our rebellion against God is great, but God's grace is greater because he saves guilty sinners. And so God's grace is greater than our sin. Aren't you glad? The next thing about this explanation of grace is that we experience this grace in many ways. First of all, we experience God's grace in our salvation. In our salvation, which is kind of what we've been talking about at this point. And to properly grasp saving grace, one needs to understand about five things. And, and, and this is important. See, a lot of people don't grasp the good news because they don't understand the bad news. And they don't understand how great grace is because they don't understand how much they need it. So to kind of magnify grace, let me just walk you through these things very quickly. First of all, all of humanity has defiantly sinned against God. Every one of us have made conscious decisions to not do what God's told us to do or to do what God's told us to do or to do what God's told us not to do. We've all consciously, defiantly rebelled against him. We've all said, God, I know what your word says and I know what your way is, but I'm going to choose my own way. That's what sin is. And the Bible is very clear on this. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so before you can understand the good news, understand the bad news. We have all blown it. Every one of us. Every one of us are sinners. We have blown it. So all of humanity has defiantly sinned against God. And the Bible's clear, God is just. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what we deserve because we've sinned, is death. That's what we deserve because we've sinned. And the Bible talks about this. I'm telling you, you've got to get the bad news first, all right? The Bible talks about two kinds of death. First of all, physical death. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, guess what? People started dying, right? Sin caused physical death. But the Bible also talks about, in Revelation, a second death where people who do not know Christ are cast into an eternal lake of fire where they will be separated from God forever in in torment and punishment because they rejected Christ and are paying the price for their sins. That's called in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the second death. So the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what the Bible says. And you say, well, that's really depressing. That's really bad news. Well, that's where grace comes in. Because if you look, people are totally unable, watch this, people are totally unable, one second, my iPad went off, people are totally unable to make themselves right with God. So we're sinners separated from God, we deserve death, physical and spiritual death, eternal separation from Him, and we can't do anything about it. We're totally unable to make ourselves righteous before God. You know what Isaiah says, 64, uh, 5 and 6, it says that our righteousness, the best we can muster as sinners, the best we can do, our best five minutes compared to God's purity and perfection are like filthy rags. That's what the Bible says. The best we can do. I mean, when we're trying to help people or do the right thing, or the best we can muster in our sinful efforts is like filthy rags compared to God's perfect standard. And so we can't save ourselves. We're all separated from God. We all deserve death. None of us can save ourselves. We're unable to do anything about it. But here's the good news. God in his grace, his love for you, when you could not come to him, 
He came to you. He initiated salvation. Look what it says over in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, New Testament book of Titus. You got 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, then you got the book of Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, did you notice what it says about our salvation? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So when we cannot get to God in our own human effort, God came to us. He brought it to us. Isn't that good news? God initiated salvation. He, he initiated that work uh, in our lives. John 6.44 says that no man can come to Christ unless God draws him first. And so before we ever thought about coming to Christ, God had to do a work of drawing in our heart so that we would consider the claims of the gospel, consider the claims of Christ, and place our faith in him. So God has initiated salvation. I remember early on in, 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 in our marriage, we were both in school, and, uh, you know, newlyweds, everything's great and, and until you have your first, you know, bout of, of bad sickness. And I had one of these stomach flu things, and I'm, it was just awful. It was awful. And, and I, was, I was so sick and so weak, I couldn't even get off the couch. I mean, I was just kind of like just laying there moaning, right? It was just awful. And, and I remember Claire, would, she'd bring me... Gatorade, and she'd bring me chicken noodle soup, and she and she kept she. I couldn't get off the couch. She had to bring it to me, and that's just an illustration. We are sick in our sin. We're unable to get off the couch, so to speak. We can't work our way to heaven. We're not good enough. We've already blown it in the first place. We deserve hell. But God, in His grace, brought salvation to us. He sent Jesus to die for you before you were even born. You weren't thinking about your need for God when Jesus came died for you. You weren't even born yet. But he came and initiated that work of salvation for you and for me. So God has initiated salvation. And this saving grace, this salvation, this forgiveness, this relationship with God, heaven, hope, fulfillment, adoption, justification, all of that, saving grace is experienced in Christ. So if, listen to me. This is so important. If you want to, if you want to relate to God on the basis of grace you got to do it through Jesus. There's no other way to tap into God's grace. You can't figure out some other way around it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And salvation, the grace of God, all that he gives us in salvation is experienced in Christ. For example, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. The Bible says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified is again a, 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 a synonym for salva- being, salvation, being saved, being made righteous, being, or having our sins washed away. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, we have a relationship with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 2, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So if you want to stand right into the, in the middle of the grace of God, if you want to experience the full measure of God's grace in your life, you've got, to, you've got to get to God through Christ. He's the only, listen, the only way to relate to God on the basis of grace. And if you don't have Jesus, 
If you don't place your faith in Him and follow Him, then you will relate to God on the basis of your sin and His punishment that your sin deserves. See, when it's all said and done and, and the dust settles on human history, I don't want to stand before God as my judge. I want on that day to be looking into the face of my Savior because I have received that gift through and only through Jesus Christ. And so we experience God's grace in our salvation and in, in, in the moment we are converted. That's what I'm trying to say there. But God's grace doesn't stop the moment. You're, I was saved when I was nine years old. So was I saved at nine and I, I've never experienced God's grace since nine? Well, no. God's grace is experienced in our salvation. It's also experienced in our sanctification, our ongoing growth as Christians. Look what it says back in Titus chapter 2. You were just there, so turn back there with me. Titus chapter 2, back in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And everyone says? Let me say it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And everyone said? Amen. That's really good news, right? Have you heard a word I've said? Okay, it's great news. Now, keep reading. Keep reading. Training us. Not only does it save us, justify us, make us right before God... But grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God brought grace to you so you could experience forgiveness, conversion, redemption, justification, but he also brought grace into your life so that you could be changed in your day-to-day living. So as God's grace is operating you, God is working in you as a believer and and maturing you and making you more like Jesus, you start to say no to sin and yes to the things of God. So listen to me, and this is so important because because Christians get cocky on this one. All right? Listen to me. If you ever say no to sin, and if you ever say yes to the things of God, guess what? It's a result of God's unmerited favor in your life. It's not that you just figured it out and you're better than other folks. It's a reflection of God's grace in you. So God not only wants to convert us, He wants to transform our lives so that we're different. So we start to say no to sin and yes to God, renouncing ungodliness and the ways of the flesh. And so here's one of the ways I know that I'm saved. God will not leave me alone. You know what I mean by that? He won't leave me alone. He's constantly working on me. He's dealing with stuff in my life that I need to deal with and address and, 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 and get right with him. He's constantly molding me and making me and who he wants me to be. He never leaves me alone. And that's grace. Aren't you, listen, aren't you glad that God didn't save you and, and didn't say, Hey, good luck. Hey, I'll see you in heaven, but until then, uh, hands off, do the best you can. That'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? No, God God saved me at nine years of age, but since the last 30 years, he's been working on me. And that's grace. Everything that's good in my life is is not Wade being a good guy. It's grace. Every good thing in my life is just grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. If If I ever do something good as a pastor, it's grace. If you ever see me and I have a good moment as a father, grace. 
If Claire's ever bragging on the kind of husband I am, grace, right? It's grace. Everything in our life is God's grace. It not only saves us, converts us, but it teaches us. God's grace teaches us to say no to sin and yes to him. So we experience God's grace in our sanctification. Next, we are equipped to serve by God's grace. Look over in Romans chapter 12. Paul makes an interesting comment here in this chapter, Romans chapter 12. Verse 6, he says, he's speaking here of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and is exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so he's saying here, listen, You, as a Christian in the body of Christ, God, by His grace, has given you a gift. Figure it out, whatever it is, and and then use it, right? Because God gave you a gift. Matter of fact, the word spiritual gifts, when you see it in the Bible, is the Greek word charismata. Charismata. The, The first part of that word, charis, is the word grace. So literally that word is, spiritual gifts is literally the word grace gifts. So listen, if you have a spiritual gift that God has given you to make a difference in the world and in the body of Christ, guess what? It's grace. God graciously gave it to you to use. You say, well, Wade, how do I find my spiritual gift? Well, we don't have time to, to do a spiritual gift teaching tonight. We'll do that maybe sometime in the future. But I'll just give you my quick little two cents on it, okay? I've discovered the best way to discern your spiritual gift is just to get in there and start serving. Just start doing something in the body of Christ. Just start serving and, and, and God will, will maneuver you to where he wants you, and he'll show you where he can use you and where you're having some effectiveness and where you find that joy in serving. The best way to figure out your spiritual gift is just start doing something, right? You're not going to figure it out sitting there week after week doing nothing, even if you take a spiritual gift test, all right? God wants you to serve, and as you serve, God will show you uh, where your giftedness lies. So anyway, that's an entirely different message. So, we are, we are equipped to serve by God's grace. So again, if, you, if you, you're serving the body of Christ and it goes well, there's no room for pride, is there? It's God's grace. Next, we are strengthened by God's grace. 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there. It's just a quick verse and I'll read it for you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is talking to young Timothy about discipleship, the hard work of discipleship, making disciples, pouring into other people's lives. And he says in verse 1, You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul's basically saying, hey, Timothy, pastoring's hard work. It's not easy. So make sure that you allow God's grace to give you the strength you need to do well and to endure. God strengthens us by his grace. And then finally, we make supplication by God's grace. We pray according to God's grace. Turn to Hebrews. I do want you to turn to this passage. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That means to hold on to the truth, the great doctrines of our faith. This is, there's, this is no, day to, no day to be backing away from truth. Amen? Stay, stay by the stuff. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, in light of the fact that Christ is our high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love it here that that prayer is called coming to the throne of grace. Coming to receive God's unmerited favor. That's what prayer is. Come to the throne of grace so you can find mercy and help in times of need. Early on in our marriage, um, I won't go into detail, but we got some troubling health news in, in, our, in, in our new family. And, uh, and Claire and I, you know, newlyweds, you know, 12 hours away from our family, scared to death, not knowing what was going to happen and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember during that whole episode, I walked into my little study in our apartment and I turned on my computer and I checked my email and there was an email from my brother. And the only thing in the email was this verse. That verse um, 16, where it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's all, the, that's all it said, just that one verse, Hebrews 4, 16. That was a great encouragement to me and Claire during that time. And so we understand that we can go to God and pray and have answered prayers because of His grace. Listen, I don't deserve God to answer my prayers. There's nothing in me that's deserving of that. Whenever I pray and God answers my request, that's grace. Amen? It's not, not God saying, oh boy, Wade has got it figured out. Wade's doing great. Let's, let's, let's throw him a bone and uh, answer a prayer for him. No, it's, it's, hey, Wade's my son. He's my child and he has a need. And, and I want to just lavish my grace on him by meeting this need in response to his prayers. Prayers when you go to the throne of grace. And so we make supplication by God's grace. And there's so much more I could say about grace, but hopefully there's some biblical, uh, it gives you a biblical paradigm to understand the importance of God's grace in our salvation and in our Christian journey. But here's how I want to close tonight. We, we've talked about grace being defined and grace explained, but I want to close by looking at grace illustrated. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. So turn there with me, Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. I believe this is one of the clearest, most poignant, and powerful illustrations of grace in the Bible. And it is moving. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is the story of King David and a decision he made to show grace to someone. To show favor to someone. And so I, just, I want to walk through this for, uh, story in four parts. First of all, I want, I want to show you the royal initiative of grace. The royal initiative of grace. Look what it says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, now David's king at this point. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So you remember Saul was the king before David, and he was jealous of David, so he wanted to kill David, chase him all over the, the countryside trying to kill him. But David and Jonathan were good friends, and David remembers he and Jonathan were good friends. Is there anyone that's still in that household that's related to Jonathan that I can show kindness to? Verse 2, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to, Zeb, to, said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, the guy that tried to kill him? Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? I thought it's interesting that David said the kindness of God. In other words, what he's about to do is an illustration of God's kindness. It's an illustration of God's grace. Everybody get that? 
So the reason I'm doing this is to show the kindness of God. Okay? So he says that, and Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So here is, here is Mephibosheth who's in the household of David's former enemy, the house of Saul. Remember, Saul wanted to kill David. And you know, back in these times, when a new king came to power, they routinely executed the former king's family completely. So there'd be no rivals to the throne. Not only does David not wipe out the entire household of Saul, he says, there's someone there that I can just show some, some godlike kindness to. Mephibosheth's over there doing his own thing. He didn't know anything about this. It's the, it's the royal initiative of Grace, the royal initiative of David. The king takes the initiative to show grace, which is a beautiful reflection of biblical grace because before you and I were ever looking for God, the king came looking for us. Amen? So we see the royal initiative. Then we see the helpless recipient of grace. The helpless recipient of grace. It says in uh, verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and it says there that Mephibosheth, uh, earlier in, in the uh, chapter, is crippled in his feet. If you go back earlier in 2 Samuel, he was uh, being rushed out of the city when a rival army was coming, and the woman caring for him dropped him, and that's why his feet were crippled. So, so Mephibosheth could not walk. He, he could not fight in David's army. He could not serve David's table. He had nothing to offer the king. He, he was crippled. And he was in the household of David's former enemy. And this is the helpless recipient of grace. Nothing that would cause him to earn David's favor, nothing he could do for the king, he was helpless, which is a picture of Wade Humphreys and a picture of you. We've got nothing to offer God. All we've done is rebel against him and live for ourselves. We're helpless. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we bring to the table. That's why Jesus said in the the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that understand spiritually. They bring nothing to the table. Some people think that, that, that they're so great God chose to save them. No, we bring nothing to the table. We're like Mephibosheth. We are helpless. And Mephibosheth here is the helpless recipient of grace. And I want to show you the, the humbling recognition of grace. Look what it says in verse 5. So King David sinned and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth. Say that five times fast, right? Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, there's no indication in the story that Mephibosheth knows why he's there. If I'm in Mephibosheth's shoes, I'm thinking, okay, this is it. My grandfather hunted him down like an animal and threw spears at him and tricked him and um, deceived him. And this is David um, getting revenge. This is David taking care of Saul's household. And so he's going into this this palace into the presence of the king. He has no idea why he is there. So he falls on his face and David calls out his name. Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, I love this, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So notice the kindness here is not kindness that Mephibosheth deserves. It's based upon the actions of someone else. And the grace that God shows us is not because we've done something good. It's because Jesus has done something for us, right? And and notice, when he hears the good news, he's going to get his land back. He's going to eat at the table of the king. It says he paid homage. He he, he fell down before him and, and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I call that the the humbling recognition of grace. Mephibosheth understood. Listen, the only reason I'm getting a good deal here is just the kindness of the king. I don't deserve it. I bring nothing to the table. David is just choosing to show me unmerited favor. And it was humbling, wasn't it? And it's humbling for us. See, that's why a lot of people don't like to talk about grace. And don't like to celebrate grace because they think they're pretty good people. And they don't like to admit that, no, apart from Christ, we are all broken and need help desperately. Right? I mean, that's the reality. We all need help apart from Christ. And and so, you know what grace does? Grace humbles you. Because if you're saved, it's not because you're good. It's because Jesus is good. If you're saved, it's not because you've achieved it. It's because you've received it as a gift. If, if you're living a life that honors and glorifies God, it's not because you're good. It's because of God's grace, which is operative in your life. That's humbling, isn't it? Humbling. And Mephibosheth here says, I'm, I'm just a, like a dead dog compared to you, David. You're showing me all of this grace. So we see the royal initiative of grace and the helpless recipient of grace and the humbling recognition of grace. But fourth and last, I want, to, I want you to see the abundance of grace. The abundance of grace. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to all his house I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So he's the, the personal caretaker of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Don't you like that? In the, in the household of the enemy, now is eating at the table like a son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And just as a reminder, now he was lame in both of his feet. Don't you like that little reminder at the end? Hey, remember, he had nothing to offer David. Couldn't fight in his army, couldn't serve at his table. He had nothing to bring to the table. He was simply a recipient of grace. And I see myself in that, don't you? I'm like Mephibosheth. That's who I am in this story. I'm Mephibosheth. I bring nothing to the table. I've simply received the grace of God, and now I'm treated like one of God's sons because I am one of his sons. I've been adopted in Christ. Isn't that good news? Now, Mephibosheth was around on this earth way before John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Just a quick word, Amazing Grace hasn't always been around. You understand that? There, hey, you know there's a time Amazing Grace was a new song? Watch out, okay, watch out. I don't like this new music. All right, okay. Every song was new at one time. That's, that's free. You can take that home and just chew on that, all right? The song, Amazing Grace wasn't around. But I, I just wonder, I, I just wonder, maybe one of those rich, sumptuous feasts, 
Mephibosheth brought in and carried in and laid at the table, and this, these great foods are brought before him as eating as one of the king's sons. I wonder if he just thought, man, this is, this is amazing grace. When he went home and, and Ziba's there at his beck and call, taking care of his every need, living in Jerusalem, looking out over his household and the lands that his grandfather Saul owned that, da- that David had restored to him. And he looks around at, at, his, at his living situation and the, the, the splendor of what he has in terms of possessions. I wonder if he ever thought, this is amazing grace. I wonder if those words ever came together in his heart and mind But here's what I know. When we understand that we're Mephibosheth, amazing grace ought to come to our heart and mind. We look at the fact that we bring nothing to the table, but God has saved us. We should say, amazing grace. We see how weak we really are, and yet God somehow works our life and helps us to live for Him. Amazing grace, right? There's a, a song uh, by Stephen Curtis Chapman that, uh, that I've quoted before, and, it, and it's so powerful because it says, If the truth were known and a light were shown on every hidden part of my soul, folks would turn away, shake their heads, and say, He still has such a long way to go. If the truth was known, they'd see that the only good in me is Jesus, precious Jesus. If the walls could speak of the times I've been weak when everybody thought I was strong, Could I show my face if it weren't for the grace of the one who's known the truth all along? The truth was known they'd see that the only good in me is Jesus, precious Jesus. When you see good things in your life, it ought to cause you to say, amazing grace. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? I'm going to pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Maybe you just need to spend a, night, uh, a moment tonight just saying thank you to the Lord for amazing grace, just, just worshiping Him. We are Mephibosheth. David pictures the, the grace of the royal king of heaven. And I'm so grateful that he initiated his work of grace in your life and in my life. And our response is gratitude. Our response is worship in light of what He's done for us.